Thank you for listening to the Words and Nerds podcast. I'm your host, Danny B. From all of us in the writing community, we just think you're amazing because you put your heart and soul into everything you talk about on this amazing show. The podcast has over 50,000 listeners every month. I love coming on your show and I love talking about it. Oh my God, I finally get to speak about it. Talk about all the things that I've been with by myself for so long. I mean, you provide that opportunity to so many of us and, you know, always are an amazing host. We chat about books, the writing process, and how literature has the power to change the world. But most of all, we have real conversations and we have a laugh. I'm feeling sick. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for being here and sharing the journey. Welcome to another episode of Words of Nerds podcast, where we bring literary goodness straight to your ears. I'm Danny V, and in the co-host chair, we have James Layton, children's publisher at Larrikin House and a massive Tom Ballard fan. James, they say you should never meet anyone you admire because it always turns out badly. Tom is one of your favourite comedians, so how are you feeling? Yeah, it does often turn out badly. So yeah, I've seen Tom rant before, so I really don't hope I end up on the wrong side of the, the stick tonight. Oh, um, I do. I hope you do. I'm really looking forward to that. So I'll cross my fingers that that does happen. But on that note, uh, James, would you like to introduce our guest? Sure. Tom Ballard is an award-winning comedian, broadcaster and po- the podcaster of Like I'm a Six-Year-Old. He's been a Triple J breakfast co-host, host of his own show Tonightly. He's a stand-up comedian and has hosted Q&A. Uh, today we're going to chat to him about his debut book, I Millennial, One Snowflake Screed Against Boomers, Billionaires and Everything Else. Welcome, Tom. Thank you so much, nerds. I appreciate that very much. God, there's so much pressure on this. What if I am disappointing? What if What if I become your least favourite comedian? Oh, my Lord. I know. Well, I guess, you know, at the end of 30 minutes, we'll we'll ask him again if you're still, <laughs> you're, you know, <laughs> you're still his favourite comedian. Yes, I'd like you to fill out a... A customer survey at the end of this to uh, to get your feedback. Yeah. <laughs> now I'll have to contact Will Anderson then. You know. <laughs> oh, oh. You deserve a rant now, James. You deserve yeah, a rant. Yeah. So look, I, I must congratulate you on this this fabulous, fantastic, hilarious book, and I just love the title. I mean, uh, you couldn't get a shorter title, really, could you? I millennial. What? What? You mean? You mean including the subtitle as well? I thought that's what all books had to have now. That you have to have some big catchy thing and then some long, boring subtitle that explains what the hell you're banging on about. It's but, not um, boring though. Anything that has boomers and billionaires in, like I'm in. You're listening. You're involved. Snowflakes as well. And sometimes when I say I millennial, people think it's like an iPod or an iPhone, like it's little I millennial. I'm like, no, that's people stop saying that in 2011. Okay, it's it's I comma millennial, like I Claudius or whatever. So that's that's the general vibe. So basically, explaining the title's been a nightmare, but I'm really glad you like it. Thank you. So I'm glad we've asked you to do that again. Now, <laughs> look, after 30 years of being a millennial, Tom, you've had enough. You've had enough of avocado jokes. The raw deal your generation has and those to come have been given. Tell us, we're going to hear. We, we're not going to beat around the bush here. We want you to tell us about the rage first up. The rage, the anger, the screed. Well, look, I'm fine. The main thing is, all listeners, please relax. Tom Ballard is fine and uh, I'll be just okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a white... White, able-bodied, cisgendered guy who lives in Australia, who had middle-class parents and has managed to play his way into a showbiz career. So I'm fine. But I read the news and the news are very, is very, very troubling. And ever since, really, since 2016, when it felt like the world got particularly crazy when Donald Trump got elected and Pauline Hanson came back and Brexit happened and the 
that's that's when the smashed avocado discourse really started kicking in and millennials can't afford a house of course because of our brunch that kind of stuff this this has just been building uh, this constant rage uh, within my little heart and soul and i've been trying to learn as much as i can about history about politics about capitalism about how our country is supposed to work and really i guess interrogating this this idea has my generation been screwed over as we constantly whinge on twitter about uh, about that that being the case and i thought when i got the chance to write a book i thought oh it would be cool to actually yeah really lay out that case and try to comprehensively sum up for other people my age and younger um, exactly how things got so wacky as they are today when work is it just sucks, the gig economy is ruining lives, no one can afford a house, everything's privatised, we're settled with student debt, there are billionaires everywhere and the planet's on fire. So I thought I'd try to explain all that with hilarious jokes. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot, Tom. <laughs> it's too much, some would argue, yes. It's not just young people. I'm, I learned quite a lot reading this. As well. Oh, wow. Yeah, well done. That's, uh, there's a lot of new material here for me. It's like, oh, didn't know that. James just scraped out of being a boomer, though, so. Just. Oh, I'm, nice. I'm an exer. I'm an exer. <laughs> I about seven years at Denny. Thank you. <laughs> no one cares about you guys. You never enter the cultural conversation. It's very odd. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Something I noticed, Tom, some of the best rage in your book was it, I found in the footnotes, and I read them all, by the way, oh um, sort of reminded me of David Hunt's Good. Did you have fun, a lot of laughs writing those? Yeah, they're so fun. I loved Terry Pratchett when I was growing up. Terry Pratchett yeah. loved a footnote when he was explaining mm. some background on his fantasy worlds. They were great. Stuart Lee, the comedian, written some books too, where he's basically got the transcript of his stand-up shows and then some of these mm. footnotes that go for, I think mm. there's one that goes for about 20 pages. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah so I always found that amusing. And mm. the more I think about it, it's kind of like delivering a punchline on the page, right? Like you finish a sentence mm. and then you, yeah, you get this little aside, this little extra beat um, that you can play around with the, uh, with the reader. So as much as I was trying to recreate, you know, the way I write jokes or tell jokes on stage, putting that on the page with a footnote was really quite helpful. And mm. sometimes the, the footnotes go for about six or seven paragraphs. Uh, mm. Other times they're one word or an emoji. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I had a lot of laughs reading the footnotes. I thought they were really good. <laughs> Thanks, man. Cool. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. I mean, it, and sometimes you just find a fact. You're like, that fact is so good, but mm. the the role of where the prose is at or the role of this particular section needs to keep going. So if I can just do this little sidebar, basically, by taking people mm. into this this little nugget, um, that was a, a good way to get some of those sweet yeah. facts or those particular yeah. moments of anger um, into the book. Now, you talk about footnotes being a punchline and you also write stand-up comedy. So what was the difference all the similarities between writing a gig, you know, for stand-up comedy show coming out next year, by the way, April, we have tickets, bit of a plug for you there. Um, Getting quick before they're all gone, everyone. Yeah, they were nearly gone when we bought ours. So hurry, people. <laughs> That's a lie. That's just a lie, but I appreciate it. <laughs> you're, you're welcome. All the lies here. Um, yeah, so what was the difference between writing for stand-up and then writing a book? Because obviously your book was really funny, dealt with those serious issues that stand-up comedy usually does. So what was the difference delivering a book to stand-up? It took a lot of getting used to. I've done a bit of writing. I've done a few opinion pieces, and my I do tend to write all my stand up out word for word. I might not tell it exactly word for word, but I do tend to have a, a script of some kind. And I've written a few sort of script things where words be, were very specific words in a certain order were very important. But in terms of the act of writing down stuff that other people are going to read, potentially not in my voice, that was often quite challenging. And, and often I would spend a lot of time. I found it hard to move on if I hadn't, if I couldn't read over what I'd just written and felt like it was, it was what I wanted it to be. So that took a very long time. Um, 
you know, there were one or two moments in the book that are stand-up material, uh, particularly from my 2019 show, um, Enough, which was sort of my big uh, declarative, I'm a socialist, capitalism sucks show. Um, so some of those, and I think some of those jokes translated pretty well from, from stage to the page. But sometimes I realized that a bunch of my stand-up is just the way that I say things, and you really need to hear me say them in order to think that they're at all uh qualifies as funny but it was it was a joy to do the audiobook i did sort of spent five days reading all this uh for for the audiobook version which is also available if people would like to hear my nasal voice uh yell all these wacky things including the footnotes of the audiobook yes um, oh my god i didn't even know this i do need to hear you yell the footnotes right <laughs> <laughs> well you want to be abused in your headphones there then you definitely want to get the tom Allen audiobook but that felt so much more natural. That's what I'm used to do. I'm used to writing something and then and then performing it and sort of delivering it in a certain way. So, um, yes, I, I have so much respect for the craft of writing. I can't believe that people's whole job is just writing book after book after book. That would drive me insane. But, um, yes, the idea of being able to perform it for the audiobook was 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 quite a relief yeah. at the end of the process. I didn't think about that, actually, because a book is you leave it in the hands of the reader. You have no control over how that's read. And that's really interesting, isn't it? Because as a comedian... You have control over how you deliver the line, which is so much part of comedy, the delivery. This is what I was told. I was told that comedians are quite, yes, uh, people who record audiobooks enjoy working with comedians because <sighs> often they, yes, they can deliver a naturalistic performance. They can, yeah. obviously, if they've written it, they've got a, um, a good understanding of how it should come across. So, um, yeah. and that was fun, even playing with new creative ideas, like the audiobooks and the, the footnotes, rather, in the audiobook appear as like slightly different changes of my um of my voice so you, you know that it's a little bit of a side so that effect still works yeah. i'd had a crack at a few accents like uh john howard voice and uh, <laughs> i'll do it for us do it for us my eyebrows that's pretty much it but, uh, yeah messing around and making that like an interesting experience for the uh, for the listener that was that was fun to do yeah how did you go with the editing process especially if you're writing your own voice to, can getting an editor that can get into your head and help you with your own voice like yeah what was the editing whole editing process like well look here's a here's a little uh, peek <laughs> behind the curtain writing this book was very difficult and i did a lot of procrastinating and in terms of the print deadline we were really we were really <laughs> up against it so towards the end the editing process was not so much hmm have another crack at this this is an interesting idea you should flesh this out this is more tom where is the book <laughs> and you need to finish this chapter and you need to take out all this defamation stuff and we fact check this and you're absolutely wrong that was, like, was, was the general like you know indiana jones pulling the hat underneath the lowering wall kind of vibe that we achieved in the title days of the book um, having said that, i don't want to diss my wonderful editor ben ball and my copy editor rosie outred who are delightful and very very patient people <laughs> They sound like saints, Tom. Amazing. And Rosie had to fact check everything, which is uh, wild. What a fact. I I thought that too. I thought they would have had a whole team of fact checkers. If only one person did it, you're doing good. I reckon she's a machine. (laughs) So, Tom, did you not fact check? Did you just go, I think this is right, and you just wrote it? (laughs) Yeah, I'll give a crack at a statistic. I'm going to guess 63%. That's excellent. I love that. Was there there anything you really loved that got edited out? Um... Honestly, no. I mean, look, just in terms of like from the initial planning for the book and the scope of it, which was way too big. And, already, you know, the, the book is pretty expansive and sort of yeah. tries to take on these big six, six subjects 
and goes into them at some depth. But originally I was planning to have a chapter on race and culture war and how millennials have experienced that as well. That got cut just because I didn't even start that chapter. I put together a bunch of notes. I'm like, <clears throat> I could write four books probably on that subject. So I'm actually just going to say that's not going to come into the scope of the book. Um, every There was supposed to be every second chapter was going to be a personal storytelling stuff, like a bit of memoir that was all too uh, dropped because it was going to take way too long as well and i and i incorporated the memoir stuff into the topic chapters which i do think yeah. actually works a bit better anyway but no i just i had no shortage of stuff that i felt like i wanted to cover or had to cover mm. so um uh yes i managed to get huge amounts in there really in the end um considering absolutely you did now this is a really big question <laughs> what's the state of australian society today tom and how are you going to fix it with this book <laughs> Um, I'd give it a five out of ten. Ooh, and, um, okay. Oh, no. Um, look, I get also the disclaimer is I understand that life could be so much worse, okay? And being an Australian millennial is not the worst fate in the entire world. But the frustration I think that young people have when we look around at our politics, how nothing really seems to change, how the rich just keep getting richer, how house prices just keep going up and up and the boomers in charge or the exes in charge just seem to refuse to acknowledge that's even a problem or are prepared to actually do anything about it. Um, as the market dictates more and more of our life, as people tell us that they're following the science when it comes to climate change, but they keep accepting fossil fuel donation money and keep opening new fossil fuel projects, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The frustration is like how much better things could be and how in one of the richest countries in the world, the fact that we still have 3 million people living in poverty and our democracy, that this democratic system that we triumph all the time seems to be so incredibly compromised and broken um, and how the best progressive option that we're told to accept is, is the Labour Party's agenda, which is definitely better than the Liberals and the Nationals from my point of view, but is still just so lacking and still not up to the task of actually transforming society and making it a more just place to live. That's what makes you tear your your hair out, I think. Um, and and seeing that, even as a political novice, I I, I studied law for six weeks. I'm on Twitter. <laughs> I read it uh, like headlines and maybe three paragraphs of an article. But even I can tell that this this sucks. And most of our political leaders are just serving us up bullshit every day. So that's that's where the the frustration comes. Now there are lots of great things about being in Australia, and uh, you know it is really nice still. But um, yes, the frustration is just thinking about how much better this rich country could be um, if things were a little bit more fair and if rich people didn't call all the shots. I'm pretty impressed that you finished six weeks of law school. It's more than I could finish. Tell us about that. That was that was basically just a recap of my year 11 legal studies course, to be honest. And even that was like, like way too fast and overwhelming for me. But um, yes, I did six weeks of law at Monash and then um, comedy started taking off. I'd, I'd started working at Triple J and then I did the comedy festival and, and got management and won the, this little newcomer award. And it was kind of like, I've got to choose one of these paths here. I could either <laughs> become a soul sucking demon working for commercial banks, or I could talk about my genitals professionally. And I, I I'm really hoping that you went into your law class the last time and went, see ya, I'm becoming a comedian and just to see what their reactions were like. Well, I caught, I think I, the more I think about this, I can't believe this happened really. I got a scholarship. Okay. So, which I was very grateful for. And it meant that I wouldn't have taken on that student debt. And I called them up one day and I said, uh, I'm not going to do my law course anymore. I'm going to become a comedian. And the lady said, okay, cool. That sounds great. Click and just hung up on me straight away. So I guess they were happy. I don't know if that means that that scholarship money went to anyone else. I really should have looked into that. They could still say they gave a scholarship without giving a scholarship. Everyone wins. I guess so. Yeah. That sounds like a good system. 
I couldn't help wonder when reading this is like, how does Tom vote? Like, and that probably led me to the question of who's your favorite government so far? Like, is there a government from history that you think of? done really really well because it feels like you give everyone a pretty hard time <laughs> we did see you in a greens t-shirt though with a sign with the eggplant yes. on the on it which we really enjoyed oh <laughs> yes 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 well i've thrown my nonsense slot in with the with the greens the Australian greens i became a member in 2020 when the world was collapsing around me and i was like that's what it took it took a worldwide pandemic for me to actually get off my ass and join a political party <laughs> Um, I do a podcast called Serious Danger with my friend Emerald Moon, who's really involved in the Queensland Greens. And we, mm. we're, you know, explicitly partisan. We like the Greens. We want the Greens to do well, but we also critique the party and, and <laughs> roll our eyes where they frustrate us because uh, they are, of course, not perfect and still have a very long way to go in terms of building power. Mm. Um, but, but look, I mean, I think a lot of young people today who are politically engaged and looking into Australian political history are raising questions about what happened when Bob Hawke and, and Paul Keating were in. Because we've been told, if you're like me, you were told from day dot that there was the greatest government that ever lived, a golden age of reform, and they were Australian working-class heroes. And then you sort of look into the history a little bit more, you go, hang on. You know, they did some good stuff, undeniably, but they still did a lot of the neoliberal stuff, the the, the Reagan-Thatcherite stuff, the privatisation, the deregulation, the disciplining of the union movement. And you really can draw... a. Well, yes, the sale of the centuries is selling off assets left, right, and center. And you really can draw a direct line from that period and that kind of reform to the very unequal and somewhat broken society that we have today. Mm. And obviously, we can't change any of that. And we can't go back to this golden age, the post-war period that our parents, our baby boom parents grew up in. We can't just reset to that, obviously. But at least getting an honest accounting of what happened there um, seems like, to me, the first step to fight for for something different and something better, something more equal. You know, mm. the idea that anything could come back into public ownership, public into public mm. hands, any kind of industry, even even in something like aged care, which is just so clearly a mm. privatized failure, mm. um, that those kind of possibilities are completely off the table. Mm. And until things get, you know, super bad, and if things keep deteriorating, then then hopefully those possibilities in mm. more radical possibilities start start being put on the table and you got that during the pandemic right like there's a point where people were saying maybe virgin australia might you know be taken over by the government because it's about mm. to collapse and we realize oh yeah we probably need a airline it'd be quite handy to have that mm. um but then i guess that went away but, but maybe in the future those sort of possibilities might might come up again i think something i learned it was really enjoyable reading this and i, I hadn't thought a lot about this because i grew up in the era where government run things were you, do, you were just told the government couldn't do shit, right? You know, so you've got a line here that says running things for profit isn't the most efficient option for society. Mm-hmm. And I, I found myself thinking on that for a long time. So you, you talk a lot in the book about the government can run things. It, you know, there was there's a thought that government should only be about, be about government and not running electricity companies. And But you've got a lot of data in your book around how the government has done a lot of good shit running things and... Um, but yeah, that line about running things for profit isn't the most efficient. That's a whole new mindset for a lot of people that have grown up under a capitalist, you know, culture. Sure. Yes. No. This, these are all these econ one hundred and one ideas that you realise have just become the dominant hegemony, the ideological makeup of everything. We all just make these assumptions that, of course, if you set up something around profit and competition, then the people involved will do everything they can to minimise 
costs and maximize profits and you will get the best possible outcomes mm. and it'll be the most mm. efficient allocation of resources. Well, mm. again, take aged care as an example, okay? So the Howard government increasingly privatized aged care uh, uh, and nursing homes, right? Deregulated the industry. More and more profit-driven actors come into the, the space. And, well, of course, they want to make it more efficient. Now, if you make something more efficient in the aged care sector, that means that nurses going around might have six minutes to get some an elderly person, a frail elderly person who might have lots of complex medical needs up and showered in the morning, right? You reduce the number of staff. That reduces your cost, therefore maximizes the profits. So on paper, you might consider this to be a more efficient running of a nursing home, but it's also a more brutal, a more dehumanized, and a, a more, I'll say it, evil way of taking care of our elderly people in this country. And so, you know, to say like, maybe looking after old people shouldn't be a profit-seeking enterprise that would be better um, is an inevitable conclusion once you look into this. And the Royal Commission looked into it and said overwhelmingly the state-run and government-run not-for-profit aged care centres were the ones that had the best outcomes on all the indicators that we should care about, which is caring after elderly people. Um, that's a great example. Electricity is a great example. The electricity grid, again, our prices just keep going up and up and up and up. And of course, these giant energy companies, they, they're not invested in bringing down our energy bills. They don't care about that. They want to maximize their profits. They have to invest in advertising and marketing all the time, like the huge cost that government doesn't have to worry about. Medicare is way more efficient in terms of like the, the cents per dollar that go to actual medical care than the private um, healthcare system is. So yes, this lie we're told that the private sector is always more efficient and mm. slashes through red tape and that produces the best outcomes for society. It's just not mm. true. Yeah, you had a lot of examples where that was different. I thought, yeah, that was really good. I, yeah, it's a lot to think about and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> now, look, the government can suck. And I, and I think I've got it in the book there. Like I, like I get it. I've, I've tried to get a driver's license. Uh, I've tried to log on to MyGov. I get mm. it. I've worked at the ABC, mm. for God's sake. Okay? <laughs> and so it, they can always be better. Public services can always be better. Often they're terrible because they're underfunded. Uh, because again, neoliberals in the government want to you know, cut them down to the bone as much as possible. Mm. But the idea that something that isn't run for profit can't be well organized, can't be, can't operate in a way that services people's needs just mm. simply isn't true. Mm. Um, you know, the employment, the Commonwealth Employment Service is really, really fascinating, right? So, mm. so the government used to think, okay, it's our job to make sure that people have jobs. That's, that's a government responsibility. Mm. And unemployment is a failure on the mm. government and society generally. So we had the Commonwealth Employment Service established by a Labor government in the post-war years. This is, this is a not-for-profit, like there's a government department, kind of like, like Centrelink, except not, not horrific, whose job it was to put people into jobs and find people employment. Mm. And then all that gets deregulated and privatized. And now you've got massive companies who profit from people being unemployed. Like that's their business model. They don't want to end unemployment in this country. Mm. They, they want people to get, remain unemployed and they make billions of dollars out of matching people very poorly, actually do an extremely bad job of getting people into work. Um, now, when you say it like that, Tom, sounds yeah. like it's not working. <laughs> it's not working. No, it's not working at all. Man, I've been very funny, have I? This is always my uh, well. Always that's my it's, problem. A, it's a great segue, Tom, because I'm I'm fascinated by comedy and stand up comedy. 
Um, you know, when I grow up, I'd love to be a comedian. Think I might have missed that boat. Um, <laughs> but we we love the comedy shows too when they come to Melbourne and Sydney. So I want to know, you know, you get these serious issues, or how do you get your inspiration in life? And then you've got to make it funny. Do these thoughts come to you when you carry a little journal around or a little, you know, recorder like Twin Peaks? Or how does it work? How do you get up there with this script? But how does it how does it come to be? Oh wow. Uh, well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's changed a fair bit for me over, over the years. When I started, I talked a lot about my personal life. And, um, you know, my first hour-long show was about coming out, realizing that I'm gay. And I kind of didn't really, obviously didn't fit into the straight world entirely, but also didn't quite fit in the gay world. It was mainly personal storytelling, stuff for my family. And then I did a few more shows that were kind of in that space. And then eventually I read out of interesting stuff about me and started looking out a little bit more and realizing that the comedians I really loved were the ones that were kind of social commentators and political commentators and sort of had something to say about the way the world works and could make you laugh at how ridiculous the whole sort of system is. So, um, yeah, and then every now and again, I've done shows that sort of have more of a explicit project. I did a show in 2016 called Boundless Plains to Share, which was a comedy lecture about Australia's immigration system, which again was a lot funnier than that, that sounds. Um, and I guess, yeah, with this book and with some other work, it's sort of moving more into trying to uh, yeah, research something, trying to, I hate to use the word educate, maybe in, info, infotainment kind of vibe. Infotainment. I really want to say something. I really want people to learn something, but I want them to have a good time while doing that. And, um, and I hope that the, the book achieves that um, in a way. And there are some political comedians who just, you know, just love, just use politics as this grist for the mill, right? Just constantly produces all this stuff that you can make jokes about and we can all just have a laugh and, and move on. And that's that's totally legitimate. That's fine. But I suppose the comedy I really love is when you sort of land something that's both really funny and really true and potentially even heartfelt and actually, you know, moves people somewhat, like a little bit more of a theatrical vibe. That's, that's these days is certainly the stuff that I enjoy a lot more. So sometimes it's literally a research project and I'm mm -hmm. literally like, I, I want to talk about this topic and so I'll look it up as much as possible. Mm -hmm. But if something happens in my day-to-day -day life that I think is funny, I'll also, yeah, just put it into my notes app and then mm -hmm. pull it out later on and realize there's nothing here at all. <laughs> <laughs> what was I thinking? And again, you've got that deadline with people saying, Tom, just write something. You're on something. stage in an hour. Come on. Please. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the process now of writing the show that you've already bought tickets Great. for. Great. No pressure. We're expecting to laugh every second that I'm in that seat. Oh, my God. Well, I'll go to Perth first, and then we'll be shit in Perth, and then I'll come to you guys. Great. By the time we get to Melbourne, you'll be epic. Yes. This is the plan. Yeah, we're a I'm a children's book publisher, and I think humour is one of the best delivery vehicles of, of, of all. So, um if you were, would you ever consider going into politics? And if you did, would you? Is there room for humor in politics? I don't know. Look, I mean, the um, who's that? Who's the guy from Strictly Ballroom who just he just got Paul Mercurio got elected uh, to the Victorian Parliament as a Labor candidate. He's in there in the United States. Al Franken, who's a very funny comedian, was a Democratic uh, senator. I mean, Schwarzenegger, uh, not a comedian, but weird, right? Yes. Weird. <laughs> yes, big entertainment guy. Zelensky as well. Donald um, Trump's a comedian. Yes. <laughs> he became one when he, when he became <laughs> Some would say accidental comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Genuinely funny. So impossible to satirise that guy because he's just like, I yeah. just can't compete with what he actually said. Um, <laughs> 
So, you know, some people have made the uh, made the jump and there are certainly Corinne Grant as well. I don't know if you remember if Corinne Grant was on the glass oh, yeah. house. Yeah. Yeah. She was always politically committed. And then eventually she said, look, I've just got to I just got to I got to do something about it. I can't mm-hmm. just tell jokes about this. And she went off and became a lawyer and she's now a um, fierce yeah. fighter for workers rights in the, in the yeah. courts, you know. Um, so I'm very impressed by people who do that. And there is, yeah, interesting kind of a lot of comedians with a law background. Yeah. Um. So I I don't mind taking myself seriously. I suppose if it means like you know doing a charity gig or putting my name out there or yeah being a little bit more politically involved and partisan. But I think there is t- too much embarrassing footage of me out there for me to be taken seriously as a political candidate. And if I ran and then won, I then think you have to be a comedian, uh, be a politician, <laughs> do the job, which sounds know. awful. Can you be a polymedian? <laughs> somewhere in the middle that's good that's very good. <laughs> yeah i might steal that that's actually go for it it's yours you're i don't no one's gonna laugh at me tom you take it <laughs> or, or a comatic you know comatic is good too comatic. if all i had to do was the speeches in parliament i'd, I'd happily do that I think <laughs> but if you have to actually do serious work like reading legislation and helping yeah. out people uh, from your electorate office, I think there are way, way more qualified people to do that. Sounds, and- like, sounds like you'd be busy buying shit back. That's all private. I was like, let's get this back. Let's get this <laughs> yes, back. <laughs> right. I would, um, I would become Stalin very quickly and just bring everything <laughs> into uh into a government into public ownership yeah that'd be fun i love it well we loved your book we cannot wait to see you live in melbourne on in april so any final wise words from tom ballard about comedy about your book about politics about avocados give us your last word tom (laughs) oh my gosh well I would like to say it's not all depressing. I feel like maybe it sounds like it's quite a depressing book, but hopefully, particularly towards the end, it's sort of a log where I'm summing up what we're learning, I suppose, and hoping to say something about um, where things might be going and where I find hope. That that definitely is in, at the end of the book. There are funny pictures of me as a kid. There's a lot of swearing and ridiculous graphs. And, I mean, I guess I'd just say it's the perfect Christmas gift for the millennial boomer in your life. Absolutely. Sacrifice that avocado brunch and buy the book instead. <laughs> well, as Amy Ramika says, you, you know, you're never going to afford to be able to buy a house, so you may as well buy this book. <laughs> and buy the avocado, like splurge. You're allowed to have your splurge bucket, have both. <laughs> Man, eat, read this while you're eating your avocado. Oh, that would be a great little Instagram post, actually. I'd like to see a bit of that on Insta. <laughs> Well, Tom, thank you so much. We know you're an absolutely hugely busy man writing to deadlines, books and stand up and standing on the corner in your greens t-shirt and changing the world. So thank you so much for spending uh, a bit of time with us talking it through. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Cheers, team.